Hey, it's Tim and Lisa, and you're listening to the REI Concierge Podcast. The REI Concierge helps Americans living abroad find and buy great investment properties in the U.S. From analyzing markets, to finding local partners, to closing your first deal, we're partnered with you every step of the way. Let's jump in to today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the REI Concierge podcast with Tim and Lisa. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Toby Mathis of Anderson Business Advisors. Toby is a tax attorney and an avid real estate investor himself. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Toby, we're super excited to have you. And I love, you know, we we know who our guests are before they come on. Some we know very well. Some we're just kind of meeting for the first time, which is the case with you. And just getting to know folks a little bit before we start recording, I am very excited about where this conversation might go. No spoilers, but this is going to be great. It's what it's woken um, so, you up, right, Tim? Even without your coffee. Yeah. Oh, you're trying to get a plug for Wes Thompson in. All right, Wes, for all those people that live out there, uh, Wes Thompson owns a company called Robusta Move. Wes Thompson, I am out of Robusta Move coffee, and there's no coffee in my house as we speak. I'm drinking a Coke Zero, like a Neanderthal, at 11 in the morning. So please go ahead and send it to me here in Silver Spring, Maryland. Shout out Robusta Move coffee. Now back to the show. Toby, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, we've all been there, Tim. I, 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 I can relate. I've never been here, Toby. I've never flat out run out of coffee in my whole house. It's insane. <laughs> I feel like I'm living in the Stone Age. Um, it's not safe for anybody. So let's start off. I'm not going to give you 5,000 questions like Lisa said I would. I'm just going to start off. Tell us a little bit. Just introduce us to you. I mean, I, we're going to talk about everything. I want to talk about t- some tax strategies. I want to talk about your journey in real estate. I want to talk about how you so eloquently put it, BlackRock sucks and mom and pop shops need to stay in terms of real estate investing. I love that and fully on board. Please don't sue us. You have enough money. Um, But Toby, yeah, let's get started. Introduce us. Where are you? What are you doing? And just tell us about your journey in real estate so far. Yeah, I'll break it down. I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada, where people come and leave their money. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Keep doing it. Uh, just, just kidding. No, I, I do live in Las Vegas, but I'm a, I've been an attorney for 26 years and I focus in on things. Uh, my, my clients are real estate investors and small businesses. So I've been focusing in that area. Uh, as uh, somebody growing up, I met a gentleman by the name of Boyd Watkins up in uh, uh, Burien, Washington. I don't know if he's still up there. It's been a long time, but I remember meeting in the, in the 80s, uh, a good friend of mine and mentor introduced me to him. He had hundreds of properties uh, in uh, Denver area and in Seattle at the time. And I remember this list of properties and just thinking, damn, this guy's rich, right? But it, <laughs> and, it, and it didn't really sink into my young person brain that those were all cash machines printing money. All I could think of is how much they were worth, not what they mm-hmm. were generating. And it was probably 15 years later that it hit me. And I was like, ah, oh, I missed the whole point of meeting that guy. And it was really interesting because he was like, hey, you got to be buying this stuff. If you work with him, you have to go in and buy the pre-foreclosures and the foreclosure stuff. And that that was kind of his niche. He wanted his people to be acquiring real estate. And it it finally hit me, probably, again, it was probably 15 years and it just like whap in the head. And you're like, oh my gosh, the whole point of what he's doing is he doesn't have to work. He has money coming in while he's sleeping. Yeah. And my amateurish brain can only think about what he is worth. And I, and, and I've since figured that out. You disconnect your net worth from your financial freedom. There's two very different things. And 
uh, practicing in this area. We do over 10,000 tax returns a year, by the way, at my firm. So like I see who makes money and who doesn't and investors. And I figured out, man, the people that were the chillest folks that had the most liberty to do what they want to travel, which is what my wife and I like to do, um, were the ones that had more of the passive side real estate. They had developed uh, assets that paid them as opposed to constantly trying to get onto the next deal. And uh, that's what I gravitated towards. And then getting into this area, just to dovetail onto your comment about BlackRock, I was in Las Vegas when we had in the during the recession, this, the Great Recession, whatever you want to call it. And they came in and were buying everything. Mm-hmm. They're buying things 20% over asking. We we're fighting with them to get properties. And over the years, I've just come to realize that I can do thing with te- do things with tenants that they cannot. Like their duty is to their shareholders. Their duty is to their investors. And that just means that if they have an older tenant or a veteran or somebody who's struggling or a single mom, whatever, fill in the blank, they can't really do much to help that person because their duty isn't to that person. Whereas if you're an individual landlord and you decide, you know what, I want to help veterans, you can do a lot to help veterans. Or if you say, hey, you know, I I really want to, I remember I had a little old lady, she was in her 80s, living in one of our properties. And the, her whole church would get behind her and things like that. And she, there was an incident where a city tree in North Carolina fell on the, the property. Oh, no. And, uh, yeah, they don't trim their trees there. And they had a big rainstorm. It was like five years ago, whatever. And just, boosh. But that house was a was made out of brick. It wasn't going to move. Yeah. But I was surprised because what we did is immediately we're like, hey, let's put you into another property. We had one that was just come vacant and it was more, but I didn't care. It's like, let's just get her into a good property. Let's get her into a hotel that night. Let's, I had a friend who was in that area that was friends with the property manager too. And I said, let's go get her some clothes, get her out of that place, get her comfortable. She had so many people supporting her. And all I could think about is I can do that. Would a property Hmm. manager or would a BlackRock do that? I, I don't think so because it's, they, they actually, again, their duty is to their shareholders. So I think that it kind of solidified to me that as individual investors, we can actually have a much more positive impact on the world. And I know people are like, yeah, I just want to make the money. Okay, that's that's cool too. But BlackRock doesn't have a choice. We do. And so I think it's really important that the individual investor maintain a toehold in, the, in that environment, in the real estate, that we continue to do battle and go out there and and buy properties and then not sell them <laughs> to these big mindless <laughs> monsters. I love that. I love that. And it's, you know, it's often when we tick through all of the benefits of investing in real estate, it's one that we often forget. And just saying Mm -hmm. like, we can provide quality homes for people. And that's huge. And we can take care and we can make adjustments and we can, yes, yes, everything. I I resonate so deeply with that. It's a really awesome part of this journey. It's horribly needed. I don't know about what data you guys look at, but I think we're underbuilt between five and seven million units. We're not we're not building fast enough and we're not keeping okay. up with demand and it's going to continue to get worse. So we're going to have to be very innovative. So I see like things like shared housing, manufactured housing, mm-hmm. those types of things becoming more and more needed. And that's the world of us. That's the world of the individual investor deciding to make changes. It's really tough for a large uh hedge fund or something like that to make inroads in those areas. You got to be kind of fleet of foot and the ability to, 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 to read the market and make changes quickly. And that, that really is the, the realm of the individual investor. Yeah. 
I, I, I mean, this resonates so completely with me, Toby, and I, I couldn't agree more. And you see things like in Atlanta in particular and, you know, Zillow's and Black Rocks and going in trying their little experiment with buying up neighborhoods and just saying, I know your all's rent was 900 now it's 1200 Take yep. it or leave it, you know, and it, it really it really can destroy communities. I don't want to be over dramatic here, but like this is something I'm really passionate about. And Lisa and I both both very much believe in, you know, real estate to us or Lisa. I always speak for Lisa. So you don't know this yet, but I always speak for Lisa. She's like, don't speak for I love for it me. when he does. But, I'm um, always so curious. <laughs> <laughs> what am I thinking? What am I thinking? Right. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I nailed it, right? Um, but real estate, it's really, you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time realtor as well. So I'm, I'm heavily involved in real estate all the time. And it really is the more I get into it and the more I just relate to people and have conversations, it's all about problem solving, you know, like Mm -hmm. sellers have problems, buyers have problems, tenants have problems, property, everyone has problems. And the more we can do as individuals and just smaller investors, you know, our friend Chad Carson calls it the small and mighty investor. The more we can do in that space to just solve people's problems and be mutually benefit benefited by that. I mean, it just, it's a small piece we can do, you know, like that. And it, 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 it's small, but it's also huge personally because, you know, we're not just investing in crypto or NFTs or these things that are just kind of mindless organisms that go at the, you know, uh, hand of the market. Um, we can make differences. And I personally love that. I don't love it all the time when stuff breaks or if I get a, you know, person that just disrespects my property. But for the vast majority of the time, I love it. Um, and I just, I think that's super important. And I had no idea we were going to discuss this with a very successful CPA and real estate investor, but that makes me very happy. You know what I mean? Like I just, that's what I love. That's what I love about this business. And I think it, I think you're right. We don't talk about it enough. Um, And people don't know, actually, I don't want to go too deep into this, but if you don't mind, can you tell folks, and we don't have to get BlackRock specific, even though we mentioned their name 80,000 times already, but these big kind of (laughs) faceless corporations that Mm -hmm. go in and buy big chunks of communities. Can you just explain 30,000 foot view for folks, you know, the eye buyers, just the way this works and like what effect it's having on the industry from your standpoint. Yeah. So I can say from, cause, cause again, I, it was right in my backyard when everything fell and they were jamming up the, the rates. Uh, um, I looked at it as you could not in good faith compete with them because they were, they could throw the money at it and, and they may look at it like, Hey, I'm going to get a four cap. And you would say, I would never touch a property at a four cap. Right. It, and, right. And, but they can because they get cheaper money than you and I. So during this whole last run up where the money was just flowing into our economy, which, by the way, if you ever just for kicks, put the, the money supply, the M2 money supply up against the CPI and they they're almost identical. Right. It's because Yellen and all these guys could say whatever they want. They were dumping cash into our society, devaluing the dollar, which made inflation, which caused real estate to go up, which is one of the drivers of real estate. It's obvious. Uh, and what, but what these guys were doing is going in and getting money cheaper than any of us could get. Yep. And so and then they could say, and I'm going to take less of a return than you, because I'm looking at this in a 10 year horizon and then they'd weigh you out and the impact on societies or, you know, in, in like the community is you end up with a community of renters where in my world, usually you're trying to pick into neighborhoods where it's not all renters. Sometimes you're trying to yep. pick and choose properties. You want to bring them up, uh, you know, commensurate with what the what neighborhood is sometimes you're buying the dog in the neighborhood and you're fixing it up right um and it kind of takes that off the table and may dumb down the that that neighborhood and then the way they function because just because again we we work with so many people that work with these folks is they have a budget that they're spending on on the lawn and and on the maintenance and things like that and it's not the the highest budget so mm. you are going to have a neighborhood that i mean they're they're just counting their dollars they're not saying hey i want to have pride of ownership they're mm. just uh, hey 
how much, how little can I spend to get the biggest return? Yeah. Yeah. Institutionalized slumlording, huh? Basically. Yeah. Um, there's, there's good and bad on it. Like, I don't want to just bag on them, but I, but I do believe that there's a space that's needed for the individual because there's, there's really bad individual investors out there that are far sure, worse. Sure. <laughs> let's let's not forget that absolutely yeah. yeah like so at least these guys are kind of like it's kind of like hey it's good not great <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah. it's better than than some and worse than others and i just say hey if, but as an individual investor you have the ability to be greater than so I would, i'd prefer that mm, i like that yeah. i love it so we should we talk a transition into taxes, right? Because you have a business and you are a tax attorney and you advise, right? All sorts of investors. And I would imagine like a whole broad audience, but this is a, this is a topic, Toby, where everybody wants to get the benefit of real estate for reducing taxes. And it's complicated and the tax laws and the loopholes and the this and the that, it is, I, I, I feel like it's purposefully complicated so that the <laughs> average person can't understand and, and really do, isn't able to take full advantage of the way that the tax laws are, are written. And, and we do need professionals like you and experts like you to help guide us. So I'm really curious. I'm not sure where it makes the most sense for you to like jump in and start, but I'm just going to stop talking right now and, and see where you take us. <laughs> well, so there's two types of taxes. First off, there's the tax that they charge you and then the tax that they take from you. Uh, and when I say the tax that they take from you is, is when they devalue your dollars. So inflation is a tax, which we can't do much about. But the one that they take out of our paychecks or that they ask us to pay the income tax, there's a lot we can do about and the tax code, like you said, is deliberately very, very crazy. It's 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 a treasure map. What it is is it's there's about ten percent of it saying here's what what you have to pay, and then ninety percent of it seems to be dedicated to how you get away from having to pay it, right? So so you kind of got to go open this thing up and be like, okay, is can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? like you know? It, it's kind of maddening, right? And there's over a million pages of interpretation and court law and all this. Nobody knows the, t the whole tax wow. code, but, but you can be familiar with areas. You can get familiar with areas. And so for real estate, um, best investment out there, bar none. Like when I look at, I look at the S&P and, you know, and, and buying dividend stocks as being really solid, but I don't get to deduct what I pay for my stock. If I buy a real estate, I get to deduct a good chunk of what I paid for that real estate. There's nothing else like it. And if I don't want to pay taxes, it's one of the few areas where I can go where, hey, I can deliberately put myself in a position like our former president where I don't pay taxes, right? Because I buy enough real estate and I use accelerated depreciation, cost eggs and those types of things to reduce my 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 taxable income. So there's a ton of incentives in real estate. That's 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 number one. Um, number two, it's also one of the most misunderstood areas because we have this thing called passive income, mm -hmm. and passive losses only offset passive income with only a couple of exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's helpful to know what passive income is. There's two types: rents, and uh, and I should say not all rents. Rents, <laughs> if the average use is more than seven days, for example, is an easy one. Um, 
where you're not providing substantial services and things like that. Like there's 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 a bunch of different little tasks, but it takes Airbnbs off the off the mm-hmm. table there and puts them in the realm of a, of a regular business. But so there's there's rents and then there's businesses or in which you do not materially participate in. So you start realizing why rich people like to invest but not work in businesses. They're like, oh, I'll give you some startup. I'll be 50% partner. It's kind of like Shark Tank. I want 25%, yeah. but that's passive to them since they're not materially participating, which means that they can make money there and they could use their losses from their real estate to avoid paying tax on that money. Once you realize that, you're like, that's I, why they're doing that. Because Toby, I literally just did that. Really? <laughs> I just realized they're, they're that. pointing fingers at the camera, folks. You can't see. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. If you're not watching this, we're we're both doing the same thing because I just had a light bulb go off too. That's I love it. learning about stuff. And you're like, oh. And then when you realize, so there's two exceptions to the passive loss rule. 469C7, if you're a, a 26 USC 469C7, if you want to go read it, it's actually pretty straightforward. It's <laughs> it's if I'm an active participant in real estate, so I'm managing the manager and I make below a certain threshold, I'm just going to use $100,000 adjusted gross income, then you can write off up to $25,000 of your passive losses. Most accountants don't know that. So here's somebody who's making, you know, 100000 110000 and they could take a good chunk of their, and they have some real estate losses and their, their account just carries it forward and says, oh, you can't use that. Uh, yeah, I would probably save you a few thousand bucks. You know, maybe not earth shattering, but but a vacation to go to Sri Lanka, yeah, right? I'll take so, it. I'll take <laughs> it. Pays <laughs> the tickets. Uh, and yeah. then the other one's that real estate professional, the ooh, real estate professional status that everybody has heard of, but nobody really knows what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's it, it's actually really straightforward if you want me to get into it. Uh, yeah, please, please yeah. do. Because th- this is something that is, you know, you see on all the blogs and, you know, you have these conversations with your CPA. But we, I mean, I mean, just to step back a second, we do have a lot of clients that come to us for CPA advice. And obviously we say we're not tax attorneys, but it, it, you get to a certain level and this is kind of a, a sidetrack, but you get to a certain level in your real estate investing career where it makes sense to pay for someone that really knows what they're doing. And a lot of our clients aren't quite there yet. You know, one or two properties, a little bit of passive income. But when you get to a certain point, it absolutely is worth every penny to find someone that knows about real estate professional status and these little, you know, tips and tricks of the trade. I think that even with the smaller person, that that extra two or three thousand bucks that they might be able to find. So so I look at value and price as two different things. So I'm like, hey, I could pay five hundred bucks to get a return done at some mill. And they may cost me $5,000 in missed deductions or, you know, of, of a tax situation. So that the net cost was 5,500. Whereas if I go to an account, it might cost me 1,500 bucks, but they might save me 5,000, right? So then mm-hmm. the net return is positive 3,500. So I'm always looking at it kind of like that going, mm-hmm. I just want to have more in my side. And if a professional can help me get there, not all professionals, by the way. Only work with people that do what you do. And I'll just right. make it really straight up because there's no way, like you said, that the, the tax code is complicated. Unless you're in this area, you don't know what you don't know. So mm-hmm. you got to be in real estate. I mean, we have hundreds of properties. We've made every mistake in the book. My partner and I <laughs> thought we were so smart. We got ourselves down to zero tax. We we're like, it's really smart, but we couldn't get a mortgage. <laughs> you get a loan to save your, like, they're looking at you like, well, you don't make any money. No, no, no. I, I mean, millions, look. <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> so you're like okay so there's always a drawback so you got to be looking at these things kind of in proportion hey i could do some tax stuff hey i could do some asset protection hey, i could do some business planning 
to do some legacy, but it, but one of them should not be the biggest leg on the stool, right? They all have to be kind of equal. Otherwise, you're you're going to be off kilter. Uh, but to answer your question on the real estate professional, it's it's actually really straightforward, but the court screwed it up the first couple go-rounds, so people learn it wrong. Yeah. If you just go read the code, it's really, really straightforward, and it's this. If you are in a real estate trader business, and you own at least, I think it's 5% of that business, then you count those hours towards the first test. And the first test is 750 hours a year, more than 50% of your time. This has nothing to do with your real estate. This has only to do with you. And if you're married, only one spouse has to qualify. It has nothing to do with your properties. Okay. Zero, zilch. That 750 hours is only, are you in a real estate trader business? And it's development, construction, management, um, just about everything. Being a broker, being a real estate agent, all of that qualifies. And so if you spend the majority of your professional hours so it's 50% of your per, of, of, of your uh, professional time. And you spend 750 at a minimum, but more than 50% of your time in that real estate trader business, you are a real estate professional for prong one. Prong two is, are you materially participating on your rental real estate? And here's what accountants screw up on. You know, the court cases will, will bear this out. You treat each property separately unless you elect to treat all of your properties together. And so people will go ahead and like, let's say that it's, that's it's you, Tim, and you're a real estate agent, and you obviously qualify as a real estate professional under prong one. But then we look at your rental properties, and you do not make an aggregation election to treat them as one activity. That means that we have to materially participate on each property individually. And we hmm. have to track each loss on each property individually, and it becomes a cluster. So it, all you have to do is say, hey, you know what, I'm going to treat my real estate together as one activity, make sure you don't have a whole bunch of pa pa passive losses because they might get frozen uh, from prior years. But you look at it and you mm -hmm. go, all right, let's let let's let's see if, if we qualify under one of the seven material participation tests. And on this test, we add both spouses together. And we say, all right, did you materially participate? And there's, there's three or I think there's three of them that are actually worth looking at. The number one is I did everything. Nobody really did any other substantial activities on my property. So you're, you're self-managing your properties. You're good. Or, hey, my, my spouse and I spent more than 100 hours on our properties. We aggregate them all together. And nobody else spent more than 100 hours, mm -hmm. right? We spent more time than anybody else. Or if somebody did spend 100 hours, I still spent more time than that individual. And you don't look at a company. Like if you have a property manager, you look at each individual that works at that property manager and you say, Wow. Did anybody spend a lot of time? And that and then the the fifth, the third one is 500 hours. If you and a spouse did 500 hours on all of your properties, management activities, not looking for properties and trying to buy them, but actually managing your rental portfolio, um, then you qualify. And all it does is it makes something that would have been a passive loss non-passive. Hey, I can write it off against my W-2 income. I can write it off against all my other income sources. And so if you don't want to pay taxes, what it really comes down to is, hey, can I meet that test? And do I own enough real estate? And <laughs> and not to bore you guys, but that brings us into, should I cost seg a property and accelerate depreciation to make a huge loss in a particular year so I don't have to pay tax? So maybe I convert some of my IRAs to Roths. You know, like there's all these cool things you can do once you determine, hey, can I qualify as a real estate professional?
So let's, can we keep going? Lisa, if you're okay, can we keep going down that path? So I, I mean, th- these are things I just want to go. So, and we, Toby, this is one of those things where we're just going to have to have you back. We have so much to cover. We do this with a lot of our guests where we're just like, we can go so many different directions, but I want two things you just said there are huge, you know, accelerated depreciation, how that's changing over the next couple of years, how it has changed over the past couple of years and cost seg analysis. This is like, you know, real estate 202, 303 type stuff. And I think at least, at least half of our audience is going to be very interested in this, including me. So uh, if you'd be so kind, if we can do kind of intro to cost seg and accelerated depreciation and how it applies to the beginning yeah. to intermediate investor, I think that that could be super helpful for folks. And you really said exactly what I was thinking. You said exactly what oh. I was thinking. Look at that. Well, see, this is why I speak for you all the time, Lisa. You just... <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Lisa Perfect. didn't even know she was thinking it. She didn't even know it. <laughs> it must be the Coke Zero. So the uh, it's, it's got <laughs> mystical qualities. I know. It does. The uh, cost seg is actually really simple. This is what's weird. You're supposed to cost seg a property. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you change from, hey, I'm writing, and when I say cost seg, here's, here's what it means. Most people write off a residential property over 27 and a half years. But in that property, there's a bunch of carpeting, removable flooring, there's appliances, there's there's specialty plumbing, there's land improvements, there's things like, like, hey, you planted some trees, you put in a driveway, you put in, you know, a back deck. None of that is 27 and a half year property. All of that is five, seven or 15 year property. But the IRS will turn a blind eye and let you write it off over 27 and a half years. The same way as if you buy a computer, you don't want to write it all off in one year. You could choose to write it off over five years. That's not very smart, but you could, (laughs) right? And so they let you do that. And when you change to the appropriate methodology, which is to break the the personal property and treat it as personal and the structural property and treat it as structural, they say you went from an impermissible method to a permissible method. And if you don't Hmm. believe me, go look at form 3115 and read it because it literally says that verbatim. And because hmm. we're supposed to write things like our carpet, you buy a rental property, that carpet's not going to last 27 and a half years. It'd be nasty. Oh. Yes. And then, and then when you sell it, you have to recapture that and pay tax on it again. And it's not worth anything. You're not supposed to do that. They'll let hmm. you do it because it's not in your best interest and it makes the government more money. But what you're supposed to do is write that carpet off over five years. And then when you sell it, there's no recapture because it's, it has no value. Yeah. And, and and so that's what a cost seg is, is electing to treat your property and its various components. Hey, I want to treat my five-year property as five-year, and I've write it off over five years instead of 27 and a half years. And all that does is it means I'm going to get more deduction in the early years. In those first five years, I'm going to write off a whole bunch of stuff. In the first seven years, write off a whole bunch of stuff. First 15 years, whole bunch of stuff. And then along comes something called bonus depreciation, where they say, oh, um, Congress says, hey, economy is doing some weird stuff. So like during COVID, they did this. During a, a you know recession, they did this. And they, they, they'll do things like say, hey, instead of writing it off over five or seven or 15 years, you can write it off in the first year. Okay, so I don't have to write it <laughs> off over 15 years? No, you can write it all off right now. How about the seven-year property? Yep. How about the five-year property? Of course. So you can get this huge deduction in the first year, if you so choose. And that's called bonus depreciation. And it was 100% up until last year. Last year it was still 100%. This year in 2023, 
it moved down to 80%. Next year, it'll go down to 60%. The following year, 40%. And I think it phases out in 2026. Hmm. So it's it, it's on the bonus depreciation component is on its way out, although there is a bill right now to extend it. Uh, I think we're going to need to extend it because I think we're going to be in some economic pain here because they keep raising interest rates and it's really tough. But um, they always they're always messing with that. But that is completely separate from cost seg. Cost seg breaks it into its components. Bonus depreciation says, can I rapidly depreciate some of those instead of using their useful life? Can I accelerate it? Um, so cost seg is going to be with us forever. Bonus yeah. depreciation moves around. And here's a good one for your listeners. If you bought a property in the last five or six years, the year that you bought it and put it into service is the year that's that dictates whether you have 100% bonus depreciation. So even if I'm in 2023 and I say, hey, you know what? I heard this crazy lawyer on, on a podcast and I went to my account and I made a cost seg election and, I, and I'm bonusing this stuff. Your bonus would be 100% if you bought it two years ago, three years ago. Even last mm. year. Yeah, even if you make the election in a future year. So I mean, help me understand the long-term impact, because if I do a cost segregation study this year, mm -hmm. it's going to help me in my 2023 taxes. What happens in 2024, et cetera, et cetera, especially if I want to keep the house long-term? Yeah. So what happens, Lisa? Great question, because this is the this is the downside. If I accelerate a deduction into an earlier year, it means I don't get as much deduction in future years, right? So I still depreciate the structure. What I'm doing is I'm accelerating. It's usually around 30 to 40% of the property value in that, you know, the improvement value of the property since we don't write off land. So we take, you know, think of a little single family house and we're writing off a third of it in year one. That's going to give us usually a, a nice tax benefit, right? And we have to weigh that versus, hey, would I be better off spreading it out? If you're in a really low tax bracket, for example, you may not want to accelerate your depreciation. You may say, hey, you know what? I just don't want to pay tax on my rents. And so uh, five and seven and 15 years is fine. It's going to offset my rent. So I have a nice cash flow coming in that's tax-free. I'm good with that. If you're not a real estate professional, you may say, hey, what if I take this huge deduction now? Do I lose anything? And the answer is no, you actually, your loss would just carry forward and you use it against future year's rents. So mm -hmm. I see this all the time because I look at folks and I live this actually, because some years we have hundreds of properties and you have an idea of what your tax bill is going to look like and try to track it on a quarterly basis. But every now and again, you're surprised. And when we're surprised, it's usually in a couple hundred thousand or something like this. Hey, you know, we have we have some income that's going to hit us. I can just cost seg a property. I can actually cost seg a property up until I file my return plus extensions. So mm -hmm. even for 2022, if you are one of those people and you're like, oh, crap, I have rental income and it's in the highest bracket because it's ordinary income. So you're a high income person. Maybe it's the 32, 35, 37 percent. You're like, oh, nuts. You could still elect and make an election for last year and offset that income. And it's literally just a piece of paper you're filing. You have to get the cost seg study. So you have to have an engineer go walk the property. Don't do the software. Don't do the cheapy stuff. It doesn't work. Um, but you have somebody that does that study. And, and again, they're, they're, they're getting less and less expensive yeah. as we go because it's becoming more and more prevalent in the real estate community because it makes sense. We do cost seg studies even after a property is sold. 
believe it or not, because there's no recapture on property that doesn't have any value. Uh, and so if you have a property that you've held for five or six years and you sell it, quite often, if you'd cost-segged it, it would have saved you money. I'm thinking of one example. We had a client who held a property from 2015 to 2020, sold it. And in 2021, we went back and did a cost-seg study for the previous year when they sold it. And the net tax savings was over $80,000. Yeah. Because because so much of that property was already was was five year property was already used up, um, and if there's an if there's anything that I would tell somebody as a rule of thumb is if in doubt go calculate it right don't let somebody tell you ah no just like hey could you calculate it just humor me most cost seg companies will do that as a courtesy and they'll look at it and run your numbers and and see whether or not it would actually make a difference and some people are surprised and and I I. I gave you guys a teaser earlier when I said Airbnbs, for example, aren't rental properties. And a lot of people, they're high income and they think they can't use real estate to their advantage to, to get a tax advantage. And I'll tell you something we do with our clients is we tell the doctors, for example, you better be buying an Airbnb around October. Explain. I want to hear all about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So here's how you offset W-2 income. Somebody is, is not a real estate professional but they have, they have high income is you say, buy an Airbnb in your town. That's going to be a rental property that you're going to keep for a long period of time. And the first year Airbnb it, and you manage it so that you're a material participant on a trader business. And what does that do? It makes the loss ordinary, which mm -hmm. means it'll offset your W2 income. And nine times out of 10 accountants don't know this rule. They're oblivious. They have no idea that they could be saving their clients in some cases, 100, 200,000 bucks. And you're like, okay, for this one period of time, and it could be two months, make it into an Airbnb, make sure the average use is seven days or less and do a cost seg and bonus depreciate. Take that big loss, ordinary loss, wipes out a bunch of your, of your income, pocket that tax savings and go invest it in another property the next year. It actually pays for the property. And then Go ahead and make it into a long-term rental the next year if you want to. Just you know, buy good properties, yeah. and you know, the, the punchline on this is that even when you do cost segs on properties like that, you can still ten thirty one them, so you never actually have to pay tax. So somebody might say, "Well, I'm stuck with this property long haul." No, you're not. You could sell it if it's a good property in your area, and you live in a good community, and you Airbnb, and you take that loss. Okay, ten thirty one it into a bunch of cash flow properties later on. Like wait a year, two years then sell it. And you just saved a bunch of money. I don't have to pay tax and I either recapture it rolls into the next property. And now you have a little cash flow machine. So like you have a ton of flexibility that you could do with real estate. Some people just pigeonhole themselves. Uh, this is gold. <laughs> I love this stuff. And it is, and honestly, Toby, like this, is, this is such valuable information. We really appreciate you sharing all this because these are things that People talk about, but don't know, including myself, you know, like I, I don't know enough about this stuff and how it tactically works on a year to year basis and what active income is versus passive and how to offset and bonus depreciation, how it all works, which is why I hire professionals. And again, I encourage people to hire professionals. I honestly, in the real estate industry, I think it's some of the best money you can spend. And we tell our clients this, Lisa, where it's like, do you have any good CPAs? And like, oh, they want, you know, three grand this year. And I'm like, and 
to have a conversation, you know, like, yes, that is a lot of money up front. But like you said, there's cost versus value. What are they going to save you in the long term? And like, I really enjoy my strategy sessions with my CPA, you know, because it's stuff that I just don't, I'm not in that world. My brain does not work that way. You know, so when he's like, well, you can do this because of tax code X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but let's go. You know, like, this is great. And like, it really, like when you get to a certain level, especially, um, this becomes it, right? Like the tax strategies become it with real estate investing. Like when you're beginning, you get kind of the cash flow and you get the appreciation, you get the equity buildup and stuff like that. But when you get to a certain level in your portfolio, like I've seen very successful investors that are just like, it's all tax. Like the tax strategy is the bulk of why I do this. And it's just, it's really important to hear, to hear these things because folks don't know. And you know, what you don't know can really cost you a lot. So I could talk about this stuff all day. I don't know. You leave a, they leave a benefit on the table. So if I told you, Hey, if you buy this property, it's going to save you a hundred thousand dollars this year. That's a very different conversation than if I buy this property and I Airbnb it, I might be able to make $10,000, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you put it perfectly. Yeah, it, it's a different conversation. It's a different, it's a tweak of the mind, like how how this can, I mean, it, it's it's so big. Like the benefits can be so big when done properly that I, I love the way you put that. Like instead of this costing you, I might be able to make six grand if I Airbnb this in Tampa. How about you buy this and I'll save you $100,000. That's, it's, it's a paradigm shift, you know? And I think it, it behooves, at least I'm going to throw it in every episode. It behooves us as investors to uh, to understand these things and work with professionals that know, right, that know the million-page tax code. I hope everyone's watching this video because it's a good one. So, my, my cup's too big to put my cup <laughs> Toby, in light of what you're sharing... I, and, and I don't know how to ask this question where it doesn't sound like I'm asking you for direct advice and you may not want to give direct advice to me because you don't know anything about my portfolio or anything, but like, should an investor do a cost segregation study on every property they own or like, what are the factors that would lead me towards or against? Great, great question. And it depends on your scenario, right? So it's not something that you have a gun to your head that says you better do it right now. Yeah, I could make a cost seg election on properties that I bought five years ago, even now for 2022. If if right? I filed already for 2022, though. Yeah, you could still go back and amend as long as Seriously? it's before the yeah yeah. So can so I get money back from the IRS? Then <laughs> yes, they'll give you money back. That's the beautiful part. Wait, okay. this is what's so fun during the uh, COVID. The CARES Act, they gave you a uh, a five-year carryback on losses. Hmm. So in 2020, I could create a loss and I could go back and get back the taxes I paid in 2015. This oh, is exactly wow. what was passed. Um, if you remember uh, past President Trump, I don't know what you call him, the 45th president, Donald Trump, <laughs> when they pulled his tax returns and they said, oh, he took a $90 million loss. You remember that whole shenanigans about how he went back and he, he, in, uh, he Trump kept saying, hey, I paid taxes and they gave me back the taxes I prepaid. Uh-huh. No, he paid the taxes for those years. And then the Obama era during the recession, they allowed us to do a carry back, the same thing they did during CARES Act. And so he had a year where he had big loss and he carried it back and got 
refunded the money that he had paid because he just said, hey, I'll take the deduction against the income I paid five years ago, please. And then you just keep using it until you until you've used it up. And if you use up and get all your money back for the last five years, then you just carry it forward. It's that's all it is. So, so, so he was a real estate professional, obviously, and he went back and just wiped out a bunch of the income. But we did that with a ton of clients. Wow. They were like, "Wait a second, hundred percent bonus depreciation, and I'm going to end up with a huge loss." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you paid a bunch of tax a few years back. We're going to go and we're going to get that back." Wow. And, oh, wow. Really? I can get my money? Yeah, because Congress is incentivizing a behavior. When they pass these things, it's not just, huh. I think we should just give real estate investors a bunch of money. If you remember during the pandemic, what were they really scared of? A complete destruction of the economy. And so they were like, how can we save real estate? You know, And that nobody could have predicted, except people that actually looked at the M2 money supply, that real estate was going to go through the roof, right? They thought it was going to crash. Hmm. And all of us that are in this world, like I'm looking at it and I literally have, like I still have all my podcasts and stuff from back then. And I'm like, this makes no sense. They are giving us so much cash. If there is a dip, it is going to be temporary, guys, because there's two things that 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 are that will give you money, and that's inflation and growth, right? So uh, the inflation's coming. Yeah, right. four trillion dollars and threw it out there. Here, here's a bunch of cash. What is wow. it going to do to all the dollars that are out there? It's going to make them less valuable. That's called inflation. That's a tax. Mm. So. So we were just like, yeah, this is going to be great. And but Congress wasn't done. They're like, let's throw in bonus depreciation and do this and that. Actually, it's the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that really did the bonus depreciation. But they did the carryback during the CARES Act. So like they were like, hey, you guys can go back and get that money that you paid the government years ago because you're out there still doing the the hard work of, of being in this horrible real estate market. And of course, they were giving away money. The interest rates were nothing. So everybody's diving into real estate. It was just, it was, I wish we could go back in time and do it again. It was so much fun. <laughs> so, much fun. So, so let me. Other than the COVID thing, that COVID thing wasn't yeah. so much yeah, fun. That setup was a lot of fun. <laughs> so let me just clarify, Toby, and, and separate out for me. Some of the cost segregation and bonus depreciation is attached to me being a real estate professional. Some of it's not. Can you it, it or or is none of it? Yeah, none of it is related. So when you look at cost okay. seg and bonus depreciation, it has nothing to do with am I a real estate professional or not. It has okay. only to do with are we taking a bigger deduction on property and are we going to accelerate that that deduction into the current tax year or whatever. Okay. The only thing that real estate professional dictates is if there's a loss, do we want to treat it as non-passive or is it a passive loss? Got it. That's okay. the only thing. And it's a year by year. So this is where a lot of accountants screw uh, it up again. Like I could have a checklist of things accountants screw up. They don't aggregate. They don't understand cost seg. They don't use it. When they do use it, they think, oh, but you are a real estate professional one year, and therefore you're a real estate professional going forward. No, it's a year-by-year -year test. Okay. And in that year, that's not passive income anymore. If you choose to be a real estate professional, that is an active ordinary, or that's just an ordinary non-passive loss. And you just carry that on forward, or you wipe out your income. 
you know, and you're like, okay, so the analysis that you do is, all right, what's your tax bracket? Um, a lot of times, like for me personally, when we do a cost seg, we, we, we do them on one property to get the job done on a particular year. I'm not a real estate professional, even though I own a ton of real estate, I spend mm -hmm. more of my time doing t taxes and, and legal stuff mm -hmm. than I do real estate. So I do not qualify. Okay. Sounds weird, but I don't. Yeah. Right. But so I don't get a benefit if I have a excess loss. Okay. So what I do is I target, all right, I just don't want to pay tax on the rents that are coming in. So I'll cost seg a building this year. We're, we're cost segging one of our apartment buildings, for example, and it'll wipe out the income projected income for the next two or three years. So I only need to do one. I could be very strategic. Hey, I'll do one cost. I don't need to do them on all properties. And then I wait around and I'll look for, hey, if there's ever a year, hey, we have a bunch of income coming in from our rents. Oops. Do you know, I talk to my partner. Hey, do you want to pay tax on this? No, let's let's cost seg another property or two. Mm. Right. And and I gun for I use a seven X approach. So if I'm going to pay a thousand bucks for a cost seg study, which I don't know if they that exists, fifteen hundred, two thousand, whatever it is, I want to see fourteen thousand dollars of tax savings, right? Seven times mm -hmm. that amount for me to really do it. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I, so it's never, again, it's never the, the cost for me. It's value. the value. Yeah. So I'm Love always, gonna, what am I going to get in my pocket? If I spend $10,000 and it's going to put 80,000 bucks in my pocket, I'll probably do it. If it's going to cost me 10,000, it's going to put 20. Mm, I think I'll wait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is super interesting and very helpful. Thank you. I feel like I need a remedial session. There's so much here that my head is, yeah, my head is. When you apply it to what you're doing, though, when you apply it to what you're doing, yeah. um, usually it'll stick and all of a sudden you have a good example. So it's, it's yeah. sometimes yeah. it's hard to conceptualize it. But if I said, hey, you know, I have a client and they made $10,000 of, of net rental income after, you know, after all their, uh, you know, insurance repairs management fees you know everything that they did regular depreciation they were sitting at ten thousand bucks that was going on to their schedule and they were like oh shoot i'm in the 32 30 percent uh 32nd tax bracket so i'm going to pay three thousand two hundred dollars on of tax on this mm -hmm. and you're like well you can make it go away with a cost say well cost segs are going to cost two thousand bucks they're not going to do it mm -hmm. right so it's, it sounds neat but you're probably not worth it now. That same person, let's say it's thirty thousand, and the cost seg's fifteen hundred, and they're they're in some tax pain, and they're like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I will. It's cost me fifteen hundred bucks, and it's going to offset that income. And I was at thirty two percent, and it was a t it was ten thousand bucks or whatever it was, thirty thousand dollars. So it's going to save me close to ten grand. Yeah, maybe I'll try that. Maybe I'll do that. Mm -hmm. And I. Toby, I love this. And I think it's, it's, I mean, if I could put like a, a cap on this and it, it's like, it's a good way to think of taxes as optional. Yeah. And I don't want to say that, you know, no political views, nothing like that, but I, I love the optionality that's implicit in what you're saying right now. You know what I mean? Like a lot of us, myself included, are just like, all right, you know, W2 income for many years, the, the government keeps whatever they want and I, I have no control over it. We as real estate investors kind of like that tacit control that we have over our properties and like, you know, we kind of control our own destiny. And to hear you talk is just getting my head spinning. I mean, not like just in different ways where it's just like, there is optionality here. 
we can play this to our advantage as investors. We can revisit things from previous years. We can cost seg things depending on our income next year. You know, as 1099 employees, as business owners, our, our income varies, you know, and some years are huge, some years are not as huge. And it should be that way, right? Like we can kind of play the game too. We can say, all right, well, we can cost seg this. We can do bonus depreciation at 60% next year. We can go back and recapture some of the, some of what we paid in 2017. It's not just like, we're out of control. We pay the taxes and we're done. And I just, I personally, I love that. And that gets me fired up because it just adds to that level of control of our own portfolio. There's a couple of little pieces of data that I always use when I teach classes. Uh, first off, you're absolutely right, Tim. There's actually, I always say knowledge and the willingness to make changes to your behaviors will dictate how much tax you pay. So if you don't want to pay taxes, mm -hmm. we could all go into a realm where we don't have to, if we're willing to just invest in like if we just 100% of the time, you're just going to invest in real estate, you're going to borrow against it to cover your expenses, and you're just going to let it compound and grow. And like, yeah, you absolutely, you could have voluntary taxes, 100%. But not, you know, most people are like, hey, I don't really know enough. And I don't want to make that change. I like doing my job. And I, you know, I like that, that steady income. Okay, that's cool. But it is an option, right? There's always that mm -hmm. option. But what really shook me was I started looking at there's a publication 55. That's the IRS data book every year. And they publish who pays taxes and things like that. And then there's a Syracuse University think tank that tracks a bunch of the audit rates. And right now, I think it is for every for for poor people, they're audited uh, about I want to say six to seven times that of an individual's per one thousand. I think it's thirteen point two for the lowest income folks per thousand, and for everybody else, it's about two point six seven. It's a fraction of a, a percent. Uh, when you realize that, you're like, holy shoot, they audit the hell out of the poor. And then they say things like the poor don't pay taxes, right? Have you ever heard that? Like half the people don't pay taxes? Yeah. And, that, and that's absolute garbage. Yeah. Hmm. Employment taxes were a higher percentage of our collection was the higher, it was a higher dollar amount about two years ago. Now it's down because we had these incentives where they, they gave all these uh, tax incentives for the employment taxes. So they're down a little bit, but typically on an average year, it's almost the same employment taxes are almost the same as income taxes collected in this country. Mm -hmm. And by definition, employment taxes are taxed on people making less than it's a certain amount of income, uh, you know, right around 170,000, uh, it phases out. So the people that are the poorest arguably are, are, are participating in the tax realm just as much as everybody else. I always say like, oh, you know, the richest people are paying all the taxes, maybe on some of the income taxes, but not on the employment taxes. Mm -hmm. So, if, if, you know, it, it, they're being dishonest or they're being deliberately obtuse and they're playing a game and they're saying, but I said income taxes, right? When you look at the actual taxes collected in this country, less than 10% of the income taxes are from uh, or taxes collected, our total amount that we actually collect around our government is from businesses. The vast majority is from you and I, and with the people that get harassed the most by the IRS are the people that make the least. And there was even a study that came out from Stanford. This is going to trip you out. I don't want to throw race into the game, but they showed that African-Americans were, were audited almost four to five times more than, than their white counterparts. And people immediately go and say, well, earn income tax credit and they make less. No, nope. even in those levels, when you look at the earned income tax credit, it was still there. So there's something wow. weird in our government and they're targeting people somehow maybe not deliberately but the system's definitely skewed 
and hurting the, the the poor. So I look at it and I say, what you know, what does that information mean to me? It means that I think I can do more good with my money than the government's doing. They're not being very, very fair. Taxes aren't what they're saying when they get on TV and they start talking, they play the class warfare. I think that when you work at McDonald's, you're paying employment taxes on dollar one, period. When you're in real estate, you can choose not to pay any tax. You can make a million bucks. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a strange system. It's a strange system. I yeah. Yeah, I twist some brains right at the end there, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> man. Good for thought. Okay, so I feel like we could we could go on for about five hours, and I know that you've got other things to do with your day. So, um, as Tim mentioned, we'd love to have you back if you have time and you're willing, Toby. Of course. Um, really briefly, before we try to wrap this conversation, in 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 this if you can talk about very briefly and we can go into more detail, but for, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about our audience and, you know, a lot of people living abroad and messing back. Most of our audience are Americans, but there are some who are not American citizens who are interested in investing in the U S and you mentioned a few things, like what are the key nuggets that you can give us today uh, for someone who's not an American citizen and wants to invest in real estate in the U S Wow. So the, the the big ones, Lisa, is if if you're not a U.S. Uh, citizen, uh, if you're not a if you're a if you're here and you're a resident, you have a, a tax filing requirement. But if you're overseas and you're buying U.S. assets, there might be some withholding done on you. But just know this: if you own assets in the United States in your individual name and you pass away, they're going to tax the hell out of your state. It's it's not even pretty. It's it's like forty percent. Oh, uh, wow. you have an exclusion. I think it's sixty thousand this year for uh, for foreigners. But you know, Americans or uh, U.S. citizens, regardless of where you reside, you have a. I think it's uh, this year's just over thirteen million dollar exclusion. So you could, you don't have to worry. You don't have to sweat that you're going to get hit with this estate tax. But okay. but non-U.S. citizens uh, get hit hard. So I would say, if you are investing in the United States, even if you're using a U.S. LLC, but if you own it individually, you're at risk of if when something happens to you. So make sure that you're setting up a vehicle in your home country or in an intermediary country, uh, tax-free something. I mean, you know, people use the Virgin Islands, they use Cayman Islands, they use Dubai, they use a lot of these places where they're in a free zone, they don't have a tax. But set up something so that your ownership in the U.S. assets isn't you, so you don't get hit by that. Because it's usually a surprise to somebody. Hey, I bought some real estate. You know, you got a few million dollars worth of real estate in the U.S., and somebody passes, and they said, okay, we got to transfer these. Uh, there's a pretty hefty tax that could be imposed by the United States wow. called the estate tax. I mean, we're all subject to it. And when I first started practicing, it was $600,000 exclusion even for U.S. citizens. Now it's over 13 million and it's supposed to go back to, you know, about half that amount uh, in the next couple of years or a few years. I think 2026 is when it kicks back. Interesting. Um, yeah. So people get hit sometimes it's a small yeah. percentage, but it's a large dollar amount. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. That's, that's a great nugget and stirs up lots of more questions, which we'll have to save for, <laughs> for another time, but this has been fantastic. And I, um, I feel like my brain is working to expand to uh, to grasp taxes. these different ideas. Our tax is fun. So yeah. fun, Toby. They're so fun. They can be fun. 
They can be fun when I don't have to do them. And I <laughs> use professional. You have options. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Toby, no, I, will, I love you, it. will you tell us a little bit about Anderson Business Advisors? Like, are you actively taking more clients in case somebody's listening and wants to reach out? What What's the deal there? Yeah. So Anderson, uh, about, again, there's about 500 of us. We're we're pretty darn busy firm, but there's always room to to train and to help people. Uh, what we do is a ton of education. So before you even become a client, it's great to have clients, but it's even greater to have clients that are willing to educate themselves a little bit. So you come in knowing, here's some of my options. So when you meet with a planner, there's something you could do instead of just being, hey, what's this? And hey, what's this? But you know, they're mm-hmm. like, hey, I have a good idea now. Mm-hmm. And these are some things I'd like to run by you. That's It's much more collaborative that way. So mm-hmm. uh, if I was going to give anybody some direction, I would say, uh, get to know my YouTube channel, get to know Anderson. I have a partner, Clint Coons, who has a great channel as well. And just start, I think I have over 500 videos on my channel that are on topics like this. Like if somebody wants to learn and do some more deep dive, they can do that. And then uh, we do free classes all the time. Just about every weekend, we do a free class uh, where we're doing tax and asset protection for real estate investors. So if you're a real estate investor and you want to learn more, just go to andersonadvisors.com and start poking around. Awesome. We'll include links in our show notes. I'm doing that. Yeah. yeah. I'll be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Once, you st- once it starts making you money, then it's cool. If it's right. if, if <laughs> right. taxes, just costume and you're like, oh man. Yeah. yeah. You got to, got to get over that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Toby, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for making time. And uh, we'll we'll talk to you offline about uh, when we can have you back. You guys are awesome. You, uh, you look a little shell-shocked. Every time we talk about tax, <laughs> we usually get that faraway look. Oh, God. I got to do caustic. I got to do bonus Tim's depreciation. Had a, Tim's had a Starbucks as soon as we we're done. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. That's true. So did it work. Tim looks like he's ready. I'm ready. Let's go. No, Toby, this has been, it's fascinating. And like, it's, you know, taxes can be fascinating and it sounds like kind of tongue in cheek, but it really, it is one of those things where it is one of the five profit centers of real estate, right? Like the tax benefits. And it gets to the point where it is the, it is the thing in real estate. And I I just want people to start thinking differently. Like Lisa said, get in a mode where we can expand our minds and just, I'm a big fan of just thinking again, you know, like taxes aren't necessarily this onus put upon us where it's just uncontrollable. We have no options. Talk to professionals, people live and breathe this stuff like Toby and just think differently, you know, have some optionality there. So I've found this super helpful. We really appreciate it. Yep. It's a game. Just play it. That's it. Nice. That's a, that's a great quote for merchandise. It's a game. Just play it. I like that. That's our next shirt. Merch, (laughs) merch it up. Send me one. <laughs> All right. And then when we put TM after it, it'll actually be for Toby Mathis and not trademark it. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. You guys We'll go into business together, Toby. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the REI Concierge podcast. As always, we would be honored if you take a moment to leave us a review. Share this with 73 friends and family members and anybody because this is awesome and valuable stuff. And until next time, happy real estate adventures. 